people who die by suicide, it's not uncommon for them to describe themselves in like a hole that they can't get out. I feel like I'm in this hole and, and there's no way out of it. I, I try to climb up, but the, the edges are giving way. And Jeffrey kind of had some of that in his note to us. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. Across the world, on average, one person dies by suicide every 40 seconds. The son of my guest died by suicide. So did one of my loved ones. Together we explore how to help people who struggle with this mental health challenge. Steve Bozanowski is a retired engineer who now serves as a suicide prevention specialist with the New Hampshire chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. His son was just 21 when he died in 2009. Steve, could you begin by sharing your son's story? Well, thank you for asking me that question. I love to talk about my son, Jeffrey. And I'm going to start by suggesting that this is a difficult topic for some people. And if anybody um, is feeling uneasy and they need some help, there's a National Crisis Suicide Prevention Line. And that number is 1-800-273-8255. And there's also a text line, 741741. So if you need help, please use those lines. My son, Jeffrey, um, he was just this great kid. We had uh, we were blessed to have two children, a daughter and then a son. And I was always a guy who wanted a son. I looked forward to the time when I would have a son. And I imagined myself playing sports with him because I'm kind of a sports nut. And I did all those things. I threw the football and kicked the soccer ball and shot the basketball with him. And we had some really, really great times together. And as a young boy, Jeffrey was just this really happy boy. And we did lots and lots of things together as a family. My wife had a home daycare and um, she stayed at home with them. So there was always a bunch of kids around and they had lots of friends. And we lived at a, on a cul-de-sac with a big yard and we had a swimming pool, lots of activities, lots of family activities. And Jeffrey was just a happy boy. And he just had this great smile. He was really a handsome kid and, um, and a handsome young man, as it turned out. And he had this laugh, jolly, jolly laugh. He just made everybody happy. So things started to change when Jeffrey was in middle school. And this is pretty typical um, as anxiety and depression sets in for some young people. About 25 30% of young people deal with some form of mental illness. And Jeffrey was one of those kids. But my wife and I, Deb, um, we we just didn't have the knowledge to know what was happening. We thought it was a phase he was going through. We were concerned, but I was convinced it wasn't depression because he he could be happy. He had this great set of friends. He loved being with his friends. He he did well in school. His teachers thought he was a great kid, and as he grew a little older, he was. He learned to play the drums, and um, he was a drummer, and, the, and he had a band, and the band would all come over to his house because that's, you know, they come to the drummer's house, and he loved being with his friends, and there were lots of nights when Deb and I fell asleep to the sound of the band rocking out. He had a part-time job, and he did really, really well, and, and the boss gave him more, more uh, responsibility, so he had a lot of things going for him, 
And so I was convinced it wasn't depression, but depression, it was depression. It was anxiety and it grew into depression. And we didn't really understand the extent of it until the summer between high school and college. And the month of August is when everything changed. First, my wife, Deb, found um, evidence of Jeffrey cutting himself. And this is a pretty standard thing that young people who are struggling with mental illness do. It's a maladaptive coping mechanism. So people who live with mental illness, depression, anxiety, they struggle through life. And so they do things to help them get through. Some people abuse drugs and alcohol. Uh, Jeffrey did some of that. Some people cut. Jeffrey did some of that. Some people exercise. You, you know, and that's a that's not a maladaptive. That's a that's a good coping mechanism. Usually, yes. It, usually, as long as you don't overdo it, right? All things in moderation. So that was, you know, Jeffrey had the cutting, and then um, a couple of weeks later, in that month of August, we found he was using drugs, and we really were thrown for a loop. We were thrown for a loop over both those things. We actually had him admitted into a hospital for a couple of days, um, right at the end of the month. We were uncertain as to whether he should go off to college, but we consulted some friends that we trusted that knew about this stuff, and off he went. That year was a tough year for Jeffrey. We went to visit him several times. Every two weeks, I would drive down two hours to pick him up and bring him back for um, therapy. I did that for most of the year, for all of the year. Towards the end of that year, in the spring, he told us that he was going to transfer schools and he was going to go to a local college so he could live at home and uh, commute to college because he knew living in the dorms wasn't good for him. He he was um, struggling with the party scene. So he moved home. And, you know, those next few years, there were some good times and some bad times. He, again, had his part-time job, and he had his friends, and he did well in school. But he he also used drugs and alcohol, and we were quite concerned. That was my concern while he was living, his his drug use. And he got arrested at one point, uh, pulled over for drinking and driving, and he lost his license for a year. We were living in Massachusetts at that point. And um, that was really a tough time for Jeffrey, but we said we would get through it. And towards the end of that year, without his license, he took a semester abroad in Australia. And he just had this great time. It's something he really worked towards, he really wanted. We we said, we were, we were supportive, but we said, you know, you have to take care of what you need to do. And he did all that. He took the initiative. He went off. He had this great time. He made some great friends. We have some great pictures and videos from that time. He came home and in the summertime, and things weren't quite right. And in the fall we discovered that his drug use had increased even that much more. And he was using some very powerful drugs that were, was really concerning to, to Deb and I. And so I accompanied him to his next appointment with the psychiatrist. And I wanted to make sure that the psychiatrist understood what was going on with Jeffrey because he was on medication, but obviously the medication wasn't working because Jeffrey was taking these other meds outside of it. When a person struggling with depression and anxiety self-medicates, like Jeffrey was doing, what it does is it gives them short, short-term relief, but it's, it really hampers the treatment that they're getting. It, it interferes with the treatment that they're getting. So it's, it's really not a good situation. So the, the psychiatrist decided to change the medications. We had to wean him off. It, he did it over a course of like two weeks. And then for... Two or three days, he was off all medications. And during that window, he got pulled over for his second drunken driving 
arrest. And again, he knew what he was facing a year without a license, a lot of shame involved in that. But he went on to the new medication and within, I would say about 36 hours of him on that new medication, Jeffrey emerged from his depression. And Deb and I thought our problems were over. We had the son back that we always knew was down there somewhere under all that depression. Um, We had him back. And we said, you know, Jeffrey, it doesn't matter what we're going to go through. We'll get through there as a family. We were just very much relieved. So we had that Jeffrey for 10 days. And during that time, uh, it was Thanksgiving. And my daughter, who was living out of state, uh, came home. And we had this really wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. And again, we thought our troubles were over. We had struggled with Jeffrey for years, and we thought everything was going to be fine. And on Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend, Jeffrey got up like 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning and started working on a term paper for college, for his college class. And he worked on it all day. He started working on it like 9 o'clock in the morning, and he went till like 9 o'clock at night. Deb and I were sitting in bed reading. And he came in after he was finished and he was relieved to have done the paper. But he worked on it all day. That was his last day on the planet. That's how he spent it. So the next day, we all got up and went back to our lives. I got up early to take Stephanie to the airport. She was flying back to North Carolina where she was living at the time. Deb was a eighth grade math teacher. She went off to school. Jeffrey went off to his class. He handed in his paper. He went to a couple of classes that day. Deb came home in the afternoon and... Um, and saw Jeff, and they talked briefly. Um, he told her he loved her, which was a little strange in the moment, but, you know, she took it, you know. I did not come home from work that day. I went to a wake that night, and um, I got home about 9 o'clock. Deb had a meeting at church. She went off, you know, about six thirty, seven o'clock, went out. Jeffrey told her that he was going out. So when we both got home about 9 o'clock, he wasn't home. So we both went to bed at about 11 o'clock, And Jeffrey wasn't home, but that wasn't unusual. But Deb woke up at 1 o'clock in the morning and checked in on Jeff, and he wasn't in his bed. And that was unusual. That had never happened before. So she woke me up in a panic, and um, we called Jeffrey, and there was no answer. And we called his friends, and ultimately we called the police. We had never done that before. But the police came over, and they asked us a bunch of questions. But they weren't really much help because, you know, they were used to dealing with kids who had issues, and Jeffrey was always a... uh, a good kid, a good, a good, a well-behaving kid. We didn't quite know what to do. We um, stayed up all night. We decided that at daybreak we would get up and look for Jeffrey. But during that time, as we waited for daybreak to arrive, Deb and I acknowledged to each other that this is seemed bad, and we were not optimistic about how it would end up. We also acknowledged that um, it's not uncommon for parents who lose a child to break up have their marriage break up and we pledged to each other that that would not happen and it it has not happened to us we're still together as daybreak arrived we got up to get dressed and we looked out the front window and the police had arrived to our into our driveway and i ran down to greet them and the police officer told me that they'd found jeffrey and he was at a spot not far from our home a very peaceful spot by a brook a place that we had walked to many times as a young family And they had rushed him to the hospital, and he said it did not look good. So we knew that it was unlikely that Jeffrey would survive. So we went to the hospital, and a couple of hours later, they did pronounce him dead. And the rest of that day is kind of a blur. We had to get Stephanie home from North Carolina, where she was living. And we went to to see my family. My 
I have a large family, four sisters and two brothers, and they were all together that day because my son-in-law's mother had passed away, and they were all at the funeral that I was supposed to be at. We went over to my, my family's house, and we shared the news, and we got home very late that night, the three of us, Deb, Stephanie, and myself. And the next morning, we're expecting the minister to talk about funeral arrangements, and I got up before Deb to make a pot of coffee, and I went into the garage to get the paper bag that we had left the hospital with, Jeffrey's personal effects, and I had I was looking through his the pockets of his jeans. I was looking for money because I knew I checked online during the evening and he had taken a couple hundred dollars out. I didn't find any money, but what I did find was a suicide note. And that's when we realized it was a suicide. Before that, we just thought it was a terrible accident. It was a gift to us to have that suicide note. There's only about 40% of suicides are accompanied with a note, and it was a gift to us. Jeffrey told us he loved us in that message. So we're very appreciative that we got it. But that's um, the story about how Jeffrey died. Steve, I'm so very sorry for the loss of your son. My first boyfriend died by suicide while I was in high school. His name was Francisco, and he was a Mexican citizen in pilot training at a school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was kind and gentle and so proud of how well he did in school, and he loved showing me what he was learning. He loved the band Supertramp, too, and he usually sang along when they came on the radio. To this day, every time I hear one of their songs, it reminds me of him. But I did notice that he struggled. One problem in his mind was that I would graduate high school in a few months and eventually go off to college, and he was worried whether our relationship would survive. One time when we were on a date, he showed me a pistol that he had kept hidden under the car seat. I thought by the end of the night that I had convinced him to get rid of it and get professional help, but looking back, that was the biggest red flag. But my words didn't change his mind, and eventually he gave me some of his stuff. A big fat dictionary that he often used to help him better understand English, and a necklace with two pendants, an airplane, and an image of Mary, mother of Jesus. The saddest day was greeting his parents when they arrived at the airport for his memorial service. And for a little while after his suicide, I even thought about suicide myself. Francisco died in a plane crash on March 22, 1985. I read in a newspaper article that an eyewitness had said he'd been circling over the area for a little while before the crash. Sixteen years later, on that very same day in March, I gave birth to my first daughter. At the time of his suicide, my 17-year-old self thought his death was the ultimate selfish act. Now, I believe he didn't think there was another way out of the pain. So, Steve, do you think people who die by suicide believe there's no other option? Yeah, so I'm really sorry for your loss. And the way you describe this young man is the way a lot of people describe their loved ones that they lose to suicide. In the way we describe Jeffrey, it's almost like he was too good for this earth, right? He was so kind, so generous, so loving. Yeah, so that sounds pretty typical. First of all, I'll say I'm an advocate. I'm not a clinician. I've learned a lot. I've taken a lot of 
seminars and this and that. And what I've come to know is that people who die by suicide, it's not uncommon for them to describe themselves in like a hole that they can't get out. I feel like I'm in this hole and, and there's no way out of it. I, I try to climb up, but the, the edges are giving way. And Jeffrey kind of had some of that in his note to us. And on top of it, all, almost all people who die by suicide have a form of diagnosable mental illness. Diagnosable. It's not always diagnosed, but it's almost always a mental illness is involved. Depression is the most common one. That's just because depression is the most common uh, mental illness that there is. But anxiety, eating disorders, schizophrenia, all these things can lead to suicide. And so a um, person who has depression, it's not like they're separated from reality. They're very much in reality. As a matter of fact, there's, there's studies that they are more aware of what's going on than the rest of us. There was a there was a study where they were playing like a video game and you shoot at a target and you estimate how many you hit. And people who don't have depression, you know, way overestimate. People who have depression are usually pretty accurate. So there's evidence to support research that shows they're not separated from reality, but they they are commonly have a sense of hopelessness and they have a sense of perceived thwarted belonging. That is, they don't feel like they're a part of a good group. And it's in their head. A lot of, most times, you know, they have loving, supportive friends and families. And that's, that's what's kind of common. And also, we hear from people who have survived suicide attempts that they are very conflicted over whether or not to take this action. It's hard to die by suicide. It hurts to die by suicide. And people don't want to die. They don't want to hurt them. They don't want to cause themselves pain, but they don't want to live. And that's what is the common denominator. They feel like there's no future for themselves. And and that's why they take the step that they do. Professionals say that suicide is preventable. What's the basis for that statement? So I think the basis for that statement is, as I just mentioned, that we know from talking to people who survive suicide attempts that they are conflicted. And they are vacillating back and forth over whether or not to take this um, this step. There's a a guy by the name of Kevin Hines who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, and he's one of something like thirty some odd people who have survived a jump from the Golden Gate Bridge. And he talks about going to the Golden Gate Bridge and just crying his eyes out and and saying to himself, "If just one person intervenes, I will not take my life. But if nobody intervenes, I'm just going to jump off that bridge." And he goes up, walks up to the bridge, and a tourist approaches him and asks him to take her picture. And then says, thank you. And he goes, I mean, and the guy has been crying and everything. And so nobody intervenes. He goes off, and he describes that he jumps off the bridge. And as soon as his feet leave the platform, he says, oh, no, I didn't want to do that. And and so that's the basis for why we say suicide can be prevented because you know we believe that these people who take their lives even when they die up to the last minute they're kind of going back and forth should i shouldn't i and if if somehow we can just intervene sometimes if you intervene hours before or the day before you can save a life and i've heard stories where people intervene they they start the conversation are you thinking about dying are you thinking about taking your own life? 
And it comes out, yes, I am. And if you had not stopped me, I was going to do it this afternoon. And so we have cases, lots of them, where people intervene and they save a life. We also know because of, in, in what drives my advocacy, we know that because so many suicides involve mental illness, that if we just get treatment earlier, we can save lives. So in my case, my son Jeffrey, his anxiety that grew into depression emerged 7th and 8th grade, something like that. And we didn't get him into treatment around that time, but he didn't like it, he resisted it, and so we allowed him to stop. I would love to talk to parents of 3rd graders and 4th graders and tell them about my experience. They don't want to talk to me because they see this smiling, happy boy. That's how Jeffrey was when he was in the third and fourth grade. But what they don't know is what's coming. And for so many of us, this we have children that, that you know, suffer with these diseases. And so I, I just want people to have this knowledge that if you, if you see these signs and you intervene early and you get treatment for your child when they're in the fifth grade or sixth grade or seventh grade, it can really have an impact. And it's just like any other physical illness. If we intervene and treat it earlier on, then we have a better success rate, right? We, we know that about cancer. We know that about heart disease. It's the same way with mental illness. The pandemic helped us to understand that what happens on a global scale impacts how we think and how we act. So how does an event like that impact the risk of suicide? I see a lot in social media of people talking about the higher rates of suicide through the pandemic. Well, we don't know that. It takes about two years for suicide statistics to be finalized. So right now, in in July of 2021, the latest data we have is from the year 2019. Because it takes a while to determine, for medical examiners to determine the cause of death. Sometimes. Some, sometimes they know right away, but but there are several that takes months. And so we don't know right now if there was an elevated number of suicides through the pandemic. But there have been some studies. There was a study in Massachusetts. There was a study in Korea through the pandemic. And the early indications are that the suicide rate is actually leveled off through the pandemic. We don't know why exactly. Some people have speculated it's because people who struggle with anxiety and depression, they're at home and they're not out in crowds, right? And we have this sense of we're all in this together. Um, and so I don't know this. I believe that when we get the data from 2020, we will see a leveling off or maybe even a decrease in the number of suicides that would be consistent with those reports from Massachusetts and South Korea. But I also saw a report that suggested in the past, when we've had pandemics or, or something similar to that, that what happens is for the first six or eight months, we have a, a leveling of suicide. But then after that, the risk of suicide or the numbers of suicide do start to increase. So that may be what we're going to see. But it's interesting. Some of the protective factors that people have to prevent suicide are things like being part of a community. 
people who are active in their church, people who are in like a bowling league. I saw a study one time, it said, if you look at a map of the United States, in the places where there are a larger number per capita of choirs, they have lower suicide rates. So there's all sorts of crazy things like this. So as people get together and they feel part of a group, that is a protective factor to, that serves to lower the number of suicides. They have done analysis analyses of when suicides are higher, days of the week, months, that sort of thing. It's interesting. I think the day of the year with the lowest rate of suicide is Super Bowl Sunday, because <laughs> everybody is together. It seems like we've lost some of that social cohesion. We're such an individualistic society And I know rates of church membership, for example, are down sharply over the past 20 years. And I realize there are a number of factors at play, but I think one of the takeaways from what you just said is basically that we need one another. My next question, our thresholds for pain vary. Our perspectives of situations differ, even when two people are faced with the same exact challenge. And some of us are less resilient than others. We can empathize with one another, but can we ever really truly understand the depth and complexity of another person's pain? I don't know if we need to understand the depth. I think we just need to reach out to each other in love and kindness. I've been around for a few years myself, and I've never regretted being kind to another person. I've regretted being unkind lots of times. But I think we just need to reach out in kindness. But I also want to touch on, you used the word resilience. And that is a question. Why do two people who go through largely the same set of experiences, one might die and one might not? Why is that? And it is something called resilience. We know that we can't measure resilience, but we know some people have it better than others. If you want to build your resilience there's a couple of things you can do. First of all, take care of yourself. Take care of your health. And three things, when you're talking about taking care of your health, what you eat, how you sleep, and how you exercise. Exercise, you know, plenty, get enough sleep, and eat well. Those three basic things will really improve your health and will improve your mental health as well. Um, also, making connections. We talked about the importance of community. Be active and make a conscious effort to make connections with other people. That will build your resilience. These things make you a stronger people. And other than that, all these things that you can do to build your resilience involve the way you approach things, your mindset, how you think. So move towards your goals. Take decisive actions. Accept that change is part of living. Uh, Keep things in perspective. All these sorts of things will build your own resilience, and when you hit that rough spot in your life, it'll make it more likely that you'll come out whole on the other side. Suicide is just this terrible thing that happens, but lots of other bad things can happen to people who have mental illness as well. Um, Some people live really unhappy lives because of mental illness. The suicide rate in this country is something about 20 people per 100,000. So, It's really not that many people. It's a very rare thing that happens, but other bad things can happen from mental illness too. So we don't want any of those bad things to happen. So I think if we keep ourselves mentally healthy and build our resilience, we'll all live happier lives. 
men in this country are socialized to suppress their emotional responses. That's not to say that every man acts that way, but it does appear that men in particular have a difficult time accepting help for mental health challenges. What do you think? Yeah, women are the more advanced species, right? That's pretty plain. But it is a fact that um, women are more likely to seek help than men. I think it's our, our, our culture does that to ourselves. The message that I try to send to people is that getting help is not a sign of weakness. Getting help when you need it is a sign of strength. So more men die by suicide than women. It's about um, three to one. Three times as many men die by suicide as women. That's usually because men use more lethal means. The most lethal means that there is, is firearms. Very few people survive an attempted suicide by firearms. And men are more likely to use firearms to die than women. However, it's also interesting that women attempt at a, at a higher rate, about three to one. Three times as many women attempt suicide than do men. So having lost a 21-year-old to suicide, I've encountered several other people who have lost children to suicide. And it's almost always boys or men that I, that we, that I know of. It's occasionally a woman, but yeah, these, these young guys, they think they have to be tough. Yeah. We just have to spread that message that seeking help is not a sign of weakness. In this country, we also marginalize communities to a degree, the LGBTQ plus community, seniors, minorities, veterans, people with mental and or physical challenges. And I think that that marginalization, plus the fact that affordable and accessible health care is elusive for some in this country, can result in real-life harm and can be a factor in these deaths of despair that we often classify as suicide. How does your work address those issues? First of all, I want to see about the, say about the LGBTQ community. Uh, traditionally, they do have a much higher rate of suicides suicide attempts and suicide. Well, we don't really know about suicide deaths because a person's sexuality is not always known at death. But yeah, we, we've known for a long time that that community has um, a high risk for suicide. And we attribute that to external forces. There's nothing inside them that makes them want to you know, try to die by suicide. It's the way that society treats them. And we know that when a person's under stress, there's a higher risk of mental illness. A lot of times, stress leads to anxiety. Stress le leads to depression. And so I want to make it clear that that's what we're talking about when we talk about the LGBTQ community. It's because of the way they're treated. Some of these other um, groups that you talk about, let's talk about middle-aged and older people. I will say the demographic group with the highest rate of suicide in our country is middle-aged white men, which is surprising, but they're under a lot of stress in, in life, and, and that's what we believe is happening. And the rates are pretty high for the elderly as well. Per capita, they're not as high as middle-aged men. Suicide is always a complicated event, and it's never one reason. There's always a set of circumstances that combined. It's been called a perfect storm. There's mental illness, there's stressors in your life, there's this perceived thwarted belongingness. In a lot of times in a suicide, there might be an event that occurs 
right before the suicide that is the trigger. It's like the straw that broke the camel's back. I described Jeffrey's story. It was that DUI that he got, and he was going to lose his license for a year, the shame. A lot of times it's bullying. Bullying does not cause suicide, but it, it can push somebody towards suicide. Relationship broke breakups, financial difficulties, loss of a job. With the elder, it could also be a medical issue. You get a medical diagnosis, and I think this is what they believe what might have happened with Robin Williams. He got a me- medical diagnosis that he realized it was going to be difficult to live, and he already had these other factors going on in his life that just kind of pushed him over the edge. You also mentioned uh, veterans. So we know that active military and veterans have a higher rate of suicide than the rest of the um, population. We don't really know why. Um, Nobody's really put their finger on it. We just know that that's happening. So part of what I do is I, I provide education to people. And I just try to make people aware of the factors that can lead to suicide. And I stress mental illness, treatment for mental illness. So... There are a lot of communities that have a higher rate, and there are some communities that have a lower rate than average. And so we do study them and, and, and try to look at them specifically, but the general answer is that we just want to share what we know about suicide and make people aware and build up our um, protective factors and minimize our our the causes. Generally speaking, a person has to want help and then has to go out and seek that help. How do you encourage people to want the help that is available? Yeah, that's a tough question. One of the unfortunate things about the illness is that the illness makes it difficult to reach out. When you have depression, you just want to stay at home. You don't want to, you don't want to venture out. So it is, it is a challenge. The other factor, and we haven't mentioned this yet. I'm surprised at this point in our in our conversation. But stigma is such a huge impact about this. You know, if my kid had a knee injury from soccer, I could go down to the school bus stop and say, hey, does anybody know uh, a good doctor for knee injuries? That would not be a problem. But if your kid has depression, you don't go down and you don't say, does anybody know a good therapist? We just don't have those conversations in polite company, right? And that's a shame. When I speak to groups, I end my, my talk with a challenge to them to they say, I want you to go home tomorrow, out in your workplace, wherever, and I want you to talk about mental illness. I want you to talk about, you can talk about this presentation you're at or, or any aspect of mental illness, but we as a society just need to start talking about mental illness like it's normal. Because you know what? It is normal. It's the new normal. We have 25 to 30% of our population that live with it. That's pretty normal, Right. So we need to talk about it more so we can we can share this information. And, and I don't usually talk to individuals that need to get help. I'm usually talking to parents. Right? I talk a lot to parents who are concerned about their children. I hear from so many parents that their children are resistant to getting treatment. And mental illness is like any other physical illness, cancer, heart disease. It needs treatment just as any other physical illness does. So... The challenge getting a child to agree to get the treatment, it's really hard. And, you know, I wasn't real successful at it in my own life. So the, the, the advice that I offer to p- 
parents is to be honest with your child and tell them that you love them and that you care about them and you know that they're struggling, acknowledge it, and you just want them to be better. And you think they can be better if they get treatment. And um, I think honesty is always the best policy. Sometimes that, that approach works and too often it doesn't. And what I tell parents is you as a parent know your child better than anybody else. So trust your instincts and love your child as best you can. But treatment is what makes a difference with mental illness. If you or someone you know is struggling, here are two resources. You can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call 1-800-273-8255. Help is also available through the Crisis Text Line at crisistextline.org. In the U.S., text HOME to 741741 to connect with a counselor. Would you be willing to help me attract new listeners? Rating and reviewing my show through Apple Podcasts helps people discover the podcast. Telling your friends to listen and sharing this episode on your social media channels also helps. Please and thank you. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation.